Welcome to Round Rock Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening. If you're in the Austin area, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday at 8.30 or 10 a.m. Or you can check us out and watch online at roundrockchurch.us. May God bless you as you seek Him, and may He use this message to give you exactly what you need. Uh, so Lord, as we open your powerful word this morning, uh, can you open our hearts? Uh, Holy Spirit, can you prompt us? Can you nudge us? Can you help show us your truth as we celebrate that you have raised your son and that you are going to raise us as well? In Jesus' name, amen. Let me see a church. If we have not met before, uh, my name is Zane Witcher, and I'm one of the ministers here uh, on staff. I hope uh, if you come this Sunday, uh, I hope you stick around for some more Sundays uh, and get to know us. But more importantly today, as we celebrate the risen Lord, the main thing I hope that you know is you know what God in Jesus Christ has done for you. If you do not hear anything else today, I hope that you hear these three things. I hope that you know that God in Jesus Christ will raise us, He will come to us, and He will surprise us. Can I just speak about that for a couple minutes this morning? I got to hear you this morning, 8.30. Amen. I, uh, I've been married. Uh, I know it's shocking. Uh, <laughs> I've, been, I've been married for seven years. And uh, one of the things about marriage is it reveals to you very quickly things that you don't know about yourself. And one of the things that I didn't know about myself is I'm a little bit of a compulsive cleaner. Uh, I don't like just stuff scattered everywhere. And uh, I found out that my spouse is the exact opposite in personality. Uh, when she receives things, she immediately asks herself, where can I put this thing? And when I receive things, I immediately think to myself, where can I chunk this thing? And when we got married, uh, I brought very little things into our family, uh, and she brought everything into our family. Uh, one of the things that became a controversy in our marriage was she brought so many clothes. This is hers, okay? Why do you have this? What occasion would you wear this for? And I mean, it was an ongoing conversation. We would have things that would just be like, why? Like, why do you need this cloak? Like, I don't understand. There were clothes from her high school, clothes she would never wear again in her life. And we are just storing all these clothes away. I mean, we're talking like obnoxious items that don't even make sense. Like, why? Why do we, why do we have to have this? And this was our ongoing conversation over and over and over again. <laughs> so I hatched a plan. I said, I know how I'm going to fix this. What I'm going to do is for the next 40 days, because 40 is biblical, for the next 40 days, I'm going to slowly take one article of clothing of hers, and I'm going to hide it. And then after 40 days, I'm going to come back to her. I'm going to put all the clothes back, and then I'm going to suggest, how about these 40 items we get rid of? Okay, And I considered this was going to be like revelation day for her. Okay, I figured she was going to be like, oh my, thank you for revealing this to me. Um, it was Revelation Day, uh, but it was not Revelation Day for her. It was Judgment Day for Zane. So we get to the 40 days. I have hidden things. I am strategic. 
I bring all the clothes back and then I slowly just walk over. And I'm like, hey, babe, you know, you ever thought about like, what if we like, what if we get rid of like some of these clothes here? Like what, what's a couple of these? And then I let it slip out. I'm like, I mean, you know, you haven't, you haven't worn this in 40 days. And she goes, well, you know, I was thinking, did you say 40 days? It's like, yeah. And she goes, but how would you know 40 days? And I can see the anger is just kind of bubbling in her eyes. And I can tell like it's not going well. So I do what all husbands need to do in that scenario. I said, okay, let me run a scenario by you. Hypothetically, if a husband were to hide his wife's clothing to prove a point, what would be your response? And she'd be like, hypothetically, that husband would not be in a good place. I said, well, that's great. That's not where our marriage is because all your clothes are right here. <laughs> Later, I told her what was happening. Luckily, we're still together. <laughs> and one of the things she said to me is that, uh, you know, that's really good to know that you were hiding my clothes because the longer we were living together, the more things I felt like I was losing. That's where I felt like I was the worst husband in the world. I wonder on a Sunday that's all about celebration, if maybe that feeling resonates for you. That's hard to celebrate a life with God when it feels like every single day you are on this earth, you lose more things. I'll never forget one of the first hospital visits I ever did. I sat with a member, and uh, I just a rookie mistake. I just asked her, I said, you know, how, how are you doing right now? And she goes, well, let me recount to you basically how life goes. You slowly lose your grandparents, and then you lose your parents, and then you lose your house, and then you start to lose your health, and that's where I am right now. Are you still glad you asked me how my day was going? I'll never forget that she said to me, you know, sometimes life can feel like it is measured by losses. Today, everyone who comes to church comes on a journey of loss. Maybe for some of us, we come with the loss of connection to God. We come with the loss of people who we love to work with. We come with the loss of friends who move away. We come with the loss of those who used to be in this area. Have you ever felt like there's moments in life where it feels like you're losing more than you're gaining. Even the world kind of feels this to a degree. There was a uh, Harvard scientist by the name of Harlow Shapley who basically wrote his final piece before he ended his life. He wrote that in the world, we have five things that are pushing up against us. Nuclear wars, famines, geographical catastrophes, pandemics, all of these things we have tried to solve and even though we've made progress with them, we've created more problems even as we solve the original problems. Sociologists, people who have studied the social history of humans, say that right now in our time, there is this apathy in the history of people. This like, what's the point in life if we're just going to lose things? There's this feeling of like, what do we do when every single day things are 
more confusing. I mean, we can't even tell what is real news compared to AI-generated news. We're losing all forms of privacy right now, even in a day and age where technology is booming. Young adults are less likely to marry and have kids than any other generation before. Generation Z, who is the most protected, healthy, fed generation, is projected to be the most pessimistic of all the generations to come. Even sci-fi movies don't have encouraging endings anymore. I mean, who names a sci-fi movie? Nope. Who does that? To put it in my words, too much loss at one time puts us in a place of what I call meh. You ever felt meh towards life? Someone asks you how you're doing and you're just kind of like, meh. Life is not terrible, but at the same time, you're like, nothing is terrific. Nothing's wrong with me, but at the same time, nothing feels quite right. You're up for doing something, but nothing sounds good. Maybe for some of you, you need an emoji to describe. All right, this is what meh looks like in emoji form. You ever had a day like this? Oh, yeah. Depressed, despondent, dry spell. They all happen in our lives. Hey, maybe here's a technical definition for you of a meh feeling of life. Is the decrease of willpower and way power for engaging life. When loss weighs down on you, when loss is all that you can see, you may have what I'm going to call for this series a bad case of the mess, of just indifference towards life, depression towards life, despondent and dry spells of it. And for the next couple of weeks, I'm just going to go through what are some things that the resurrection of Jesus speaks to us in our melancholies of life. Because if all you see is a life marked by loss, God has good news for you because gaining God is a life of gain. It is good news in worth of believing and receiving, not because your life has to go off of your willpower or your way power, but because of God's. God does not want you to have a feeling in life like life is a series of losses. We know this because Paul writes to a group of believers in Thessalonica. He writes to a group of believers who they are wrestling with loss. Following Jesus has created loss in their life. They have lost connection, they have lost credibility, and they have lost comfortability. You can sense that they are losing hope that Jesus is returning. And now they're wrestling in chapter 4 with what do we do with the people who we have lost in life. Geographically, they are in Thessalonica, but spiritually, they are in a meh state of life. And here's what Paul addresses to them. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who you've lost, so that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. In essence, they are in a meh state of life. I actually like another way that's translated in verse 13. But we do not want you to be in the dark 
any longer. God does not want his people to be in a dark headspace about life. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, if your head is in this space, here's what your head needs to wrap yourself around. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with those who have died. Paul reminds, he says, do not forget where all of this faith rests on, that Jesus died and he rose again. I love the way that Michael described this in communion. This is not a once upon a time story. Christians have actually said, historically, this is placed in time, real events with it. And if you and I were sitting at coffee and you would just tell me, is there a way to prove this beyond reasonable of doubt? No, but I would tell you that the message is so convincing and so convicting, even historically, that it's not a stretch. I want you to think about it for a minute. That when it comes to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the sources and the outbreak and the diversity of this message is powerful. You know, we know that Jesus was a physical human being. We have sources written by people who didn't even like Jesus or agree with Jesus, that he was a man in history. Even scholars today would tell you, based on the facts, that the question is not, did Jesus exist? The question is, who was he while he existed? The outbreak of the message contains so much power. Rome, who is basically like, they're like a Liam Neeson movie on display. They are good at killing. There was no mistake with the body of Jesus. This wasn't a resuscitation of Jesus. Rome knew how to kill and torture. And on top of that, the leaders who talked about Jesus, who were with Jesus, left Jesus. But the word of Jesus spread more after Jesus' death, even before it. And then finally, just the diversity of the message. I mean, the women are the ones who first proclaimed the message of Jesus. If you wanted to get a story across, you wouldn't let women back in the day carry that story. On top of it, if you read through the Gospels, all the disciples are goobers. They could, they could revise this whole story, make themselves look better, and they didn't because they believed that something happened and the tomb was empty. Even today, one of the things that's most convincing is me is that the resurrection of Jesus isn't held just to one geographical location or culture. There's roughly about the same population that has testified to Jesus in Europe, North America, and Africa. And if you give China five more years, they're going to be ahead of all three of those regions with believers. Paul tells the believers in Thessalonica, do not forget the entire movement this rests on, that Jesus died and he rose again. In essence, what happened to Jesus is what can happen to us either in our lifetime or after the time of our life. What happened is in his name can happen to those who trust in his name. 
all different faiths respond to death. Some say that, you know, the physical life is over and something spiritually happens. Some actually say that it all stops to exist. Some say that there's reincarnation with it. The resurrection says yes to physical and spiritual life, even after death. Resurrection is the down payment of Jesus saying, this is what is to come. God raises us, and he is with us. The second piece of good news for resurrection this morning is he not just raises us, but he comes to us. I want you to look at this depiction that Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians. He says this starting in verse 16. Uh, From the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together, my goodness, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Now, when we hear this depiction, people throughout history have sometimes leaned on this to be a prediction that this is what it's going to look like. At some point, God's going to snatch us up. He's going to lift us into the sky. We're going to be above everyone else, and we're going to be with God, singing glory land way every single day. Some have seen this as a blueprint. And when you just read kind of the passage, that completely makes sense to understand it that way. I'm not sure this takes into account the understanding of Paul and the understanding of the people who are hearing Paul. You know, maybe one way to describe it is kind of the way that my uh, grandfather uh, would describe working on cars. You know, my grandfather was an auto mechanic, uh, and God bless him, he wanted me to do it as well. Uh, I work with books way more than I work with tools, and I remember I would peek over the hood of the car, and he would explain everything that was going on in the engine. He would explain all the technical terms, and he'd be like, all right, now repeat it back to me. I'd be like, well, you you take the doohickey, and you connect it to that pipe right there that connects to the cylinder, and he'd just be like, stop, 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 stop. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to put it to you simple. There's a lot happening underneath the hood of this car. Okay, that's what's happening. So every time someone would walk in the shop, and they'd be like, what's wrong with that car? I'd be like, oh. You know, there's a lot happening underneath the hood of that car. To put it plainly to you, there's a lot happening underneath the hood of this passage. I mean, we can't even get into all the details with it. When Paul talks about the Lord descending, he's alluding to the imagery of Moses, a man of God who came down from a mountain. He said, this is God's reality and God's command. When you get that phrasing of caught up together with them in the clouds, some believe this is an allusion to Daniel 7, that he's basically, in Daniel 7, he describes like the Lord brings up his people. He lifts them up on clouds in the midst of their suffering. And Paul kind of says, it's kind of like that. And then he uses some more imagery. He's like, you're going to meet the Lord in the air. And you're like, what is going on? You know, sometimes... When emperors would historically come to a town, the people would actually go out to the emperor when he was a ways away, and they would meet him there. 
And then they would all come back together of where the people first came from. My guess is Paul is less predictive and more pastoral when he's talking to his groups of people. He's grabbing images to be like, it's kind of like this, and it's kind of like this, and it may kind of be like this. But the main point is, is that God and Jesus Christ comes back to us. Maybe putting it another way. I grew up singing the song over and over again. You know, uh, Just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away. I love that song. But one thing about that song is it may be comforting, but it's not confronting enough of Jesus. That Jesus isn't an escapist. Jesus isn't trying to just smuggle us off of the world that he's created. No, Jesus came into the world and he died on the cross and he was resurrected by God to say a statement to the powers and the principalities that exist in this world world. He comes to forgive us and free us. Christ comes and addresses the cruelty experienced by creation. It's one of the reasons we need forgiveness is because there are ways we have failed to love. There are ways that we have failed to join in God's plan for creation. And the blood of Jesus forgives us and frees us from the ways that we've contributed to the cruelty of this world. Jesus says, what you do with your hands is just as close as what you think with your heart. You may be sitting here today thinking like, I haven't done that much bad in my life. If we got inside your head and we listened to your dialogue for a little while, are we still going to hold that posture? There's something wrong in here. God's judgment for us to say, come Lord Jesus, probably feels uncomfortable to a lot of us. But God's judgment is kind of like a buzzer at the end of the last March Madness game. There will be a time when all of it's over. And there is a clear winner. And the cross and the empty tomb declares who the winner is. God's judgment is God coming back and saying, no more injustice, no more bullying, no more violence, no more cancer. No more endless school shootings that don't make sense. Here's even the death of death itself. He comes to us. He will come back and restore the creation that he created because he said it's good. God's not an escapist. He comes to us. He saves us. And he is to be with us. I want you to lean on what Paul says in verse 18 again. Not only does he come to us. But Paul even says this at the end. So we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We want to focus on what is happening and when is this going to happen when Jesus returns. But Paul wants us to focus on when it happens, whom we will be with for the rest of our lives. To put it plainly for you, is Paul is saying that when Jesus comes, he is going to surprise us again, just like he surprised us the first time. I love getting people on really good rants. Like if I know someone will rant about something, I want to hear it. One of my favorite rants that I love to get people on 
And generally this ramp works really well with those who have a little bit of snow on the top of the roof. You know what I'm saying? It's the rant of nothing surprises me anymore. You ever been around one of those people? Like, ah, nothing surprises me anymore. Man on the moon, called it. Nothing surprises me anymore. Pineapple on pizza, nothing surprises me anymore. Computer in your pocket, nothing surprises me anymore. Bell-bottom pants coming back into style, nothing surprises me anymore. Maybe to put it to you this way, people of resurrection are people who expect to be surprised by God. When he returns, his forgiveness of who he's going to forgive is going to surprise you. His power, when it returns, is going to surprise you. The way that heaven and earth come together, that Jesus prayed on earth as it is in heaven, when that prayer is fully fulfilled, it will surprise you. You know, for any people who are listening back in Jesus' day, the idea of a final judgment, of everyone being raised, would not surprise people. What surprised people is that Jesus, in this lifetime, in the midst of time, experienced resurrection first. If people back then would be surprised, we should be people who are surprised as well. One of my favorite authors who I think articulates this really well is Rebecca McLaughlin. She um, actually tells a story where she's sitting with a friend who's probably on her last couple days of life. And she asks her, you know, how are you processing this? And she says something to the effect of, uh, you know, I think I've come to terms and come to peace with my life. I guess I'm just kind of holding out for heaven is going to be that chance where I get to see my husband again and I get to be in his arms. And Rebecca paused for a moment and then she said, you know, I actually don't think that's a bad thing to hope for. I just think it's too small of a hope. Maybe the most deepest love you have experienced in the arms of a spouse or a family member is meaningful to you, but it is just a drop of water compared to the ocean of God's love that's waiting for you at the resurrection. For those of us who have encountered a decent amount of loss in our lives, I think we've lost the ability for God to surprise us. Ability for God to surprise us in the future, but also to surprise us in the present. Jesus surprised people in this present time with his resurrection. If he's released his resurrection, we should be people who are waiting for God's surprises. The first fruits of the resurrection to start popping up in our lives. You know, one of the images that the Bible actually uses to talk about posture uh, with people is close. I want you to think of it this way. In the very beginning of the Bible, when humanity sins, when they eat of that tree, the first instinct they do is they sow fig leaves because they want to cover themselves up. When God's grace is shown to them as they leave Eden, he gives them clothes. In the Old Testament, you see the people of God putting on sackcloth to repent for themselves. Even in the New Testament, you find that Paul uses this language over and over again. I want you to put on Christ. I want you to put on the armor of God. Part of our posture is articulated 
in clothing. I guess what I want to say for people who showed up to Easter today dressed in their best is that Easter is a time to examine what is my posture towards the resurrection, towards God resurrected. You know, for some of us, I think, honestly, we kind of treat the resurrection like it is this child's story. Like that it was something we believed a long time ago, but really it has no relevancy in our life anymore. I find that this is a very interesting posture to have because usually when people have kids again, they want their kids back in church. Maybe we got to sit with why that is. You know, for some of us, we may view it as uh, the resurrection of Jesus kind of like a really comfy sweater, okay? I want it when I want to feel really good in my life. So it shows up every once in a while. Maybe for some of us, we, maybe we think it's this bad boy. We think, when we think of the resurrection of Jesus, the name of Jesus, we think of just toxic, manipulating. I want nothing to do with it because I've seen what people do in the name of Jesus. Maybe that's our posture towards it. And you know, maybe for some of us, well, I'm not going to say some of us, I'm going to say Round Rock Church Christ here. Um, for some of us, we probably treat it like a graduation gown. We've learned it. We've heard it. We repeat it. We show up to church because we want a little bit of insight, maybe a little bit of nostalgia. When the resurrection of Jesus says, no, there is a presence and a power. The presence and power that resurrected Jesus is also available to all of us. He's not one to just study. He's not Abraham Lincoln just in history. He is the one who's a risen Lord that we worship today. You know, this may be an uncomfortable image for some of us, but when it comes to truly a posture of resurrection, if we're going to pick an article of clothing, I think for some of us what we really desperately need is um, we need to think of it kind of like a hospital gown. You ever worn one of these bad boys before? It's the worst, okay? You know why it's the worst? Because when you wear this thing, you cannot hide from anyone that you are sick, that you need healing. You know why this thing is the worst? Because there is no backside to protect you from. You have to be vulnerable. Can I give you the same imagery for the resurrection of Jesus? You have to. You have to claim you are not right. There is stuff going on here that you need resurrection from. You have to be vulnerable and say where you need resurrection in life. I nearly passed out when I first got to this church. I stood in a conversation where I heard a younger believer actually disclose the ways that he was suffering in working through his life with God. And I heard an older believer right next to him say to him, oh man, I would never disclose that much information about my life. What? If we're people of resurrection, we're claiming things aren't right with our lives. We're claiming that we need God's resurrection in our lives. So we should be transparent about the healing we need in our lives. Maybe to put it this way, and this isn't for everyone, but hear me. Maybe if some of us don't feel anything during Easter, it's because we haven't been honest about why we even need resurrection 
in our life in the first place. So maybe that's where you start with Jesus today. Name the hurt. Because the good news of God is the greater the hurt, the greater the joy to come. So God, I, I, I don't know where some of us come in towards your good news today. God, I pray for those of us who this has felt like something of childhood and we've kind of moved past it. Uh, Spirit, would you just prompt them to give the empty tomb another look. God, for those who are really caught up on just the ways that the name of Jesus has been misused or abused, Lord, can you remind them that, you know, even though there's people that misuse the name of God, doesn't disprove the existence of God. I pray for those of us who, resurrection is just kind of like a comfy sweater that we just put on. Can you convict us that if you have clothed us, we are to go and clothe others as well? Reveal to us where we need to do that. We want to show you, Jesus, that we believe in this. And Father, I I just echo Michael's prayer. For those of us who have let the resurrection, the good news of God, become a tale of history, something to study, something of nostalgia, Spirit, may we help sense your life-giving power. May you help us once again fall in love with our first love, which is you, Jesus. Raise our lives. We're open, coming to you in need of your saving and your rescue. In Jesus' name, amen.